Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, Word of Lifers, right here in the house and online. Good morning. On the first Sunday of Lent, that's where we are, first Sunday of Lent. You know what I'm giving up for Lent? Complacency. I'll tell you a story. Uh, we, did our <laughs> we did our Lenten retreat. It was wonderful. And uh, then Perry and I went and visited some of our friends over at the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. They asked us to come over and say hi. And so we went over there. We were there for their <clears throat> vespers, and then they asked us to stay for dinner. We're in a monastery during Lent for dinner, and at the end of the dinner, Sister, Sister Rita came up to me and said, Would you like a brownie and ice cream? I said, Well, you all know how to do Lent here in this monastery, don't you? And I said, Thank you very much. I, you know, you give up whatever you give up, but what I'm trying to give up is complacency. And my theme for this Lenten season is let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. So on this first Sunday in Lent, the lectionary, as you've just heard, takes us to the wilderness temptation of Christ. Now, as Jesus prayed and fasted, for 40 days in preparation to launch his ministry. His ministry that would announce and enact the arrival of the kingdom of God. He was beset by three satanic temptations. The first two temptations involved the misuse of miraculous powers, but it was that final temptation that third temptation that was the most insidious. It is, in fact, the temptation to receive political dominion over the kingdoms of the world in exchange for bowing down to the devil. And the third temptation deserves special attention, not only because it was the most sinister, but because it is the temptation that has beguiled and beleaguered the church for 17 centuries. So I'm preaching today on the third temptation, Matthew chapter four, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Whew, what a dramatic account of that third temptation. In 1311, Duccio de Buon Insegna, Oh, I got it right. I practiced that all week. 
I won't try it again. Depicted the third temptation like this. And I, I like it. I just, I just like Jesus responding to the devil so directly, quoting the word. This third temptation is a, is a mountaintop temptation. There's, there's a mountaintop vision that the devil takes Jesus onto a mountaintop and shows him the kingdoms of the world and their splendid glory. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And the offer is that with a mere gesture of obeisance, and no one really need to know, all this political power would be given to Jesus. Jesus countered the devil's temptation as he did with the first two temptations with the word of God. Away with you, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, if we over-literalize, though, this very real temptation. I have no doubt the devil came and I understand the nature of the temptation, I do believe. But if we over-literalize Matthew's account, we make it cartoonish and end up missing the point. The temptation was not for Jesus to become a Anton LaVey-styled Satanist, (laughs) complete with pentagrams and goat horns and a cape. (laughs) That's not the nature of the temptation. The temptation was to bring the kingdom of God through political and military force. Oh, that brings it home right there. Okay, that that is something that takes it out of the realm of the cartoonish and brings it to where we live. The temptation that the devil presented to Jesus was to hand over to him. Well, let's say it this way. The temptation was for Jesus to bring the reign of God, the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the politics of God into the world in the same way as the pharaohs and Caesars, in the same way as Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar and Julius Caesar. I mean, just, you know, through political and military might enforce this goodness upon them. And that's that's the insidious nature of it. Jesus would do good. Of course, you know, it would be a good end. And the the end would justify the means. Raise an army. Kill the bad guys. Bring in the kingdom of God. That's the temptation. That the end justifies the means. Never forget this. The means are the end in the process of becoming. All right, let's make it clear. The temptation was to become a political military messiah. 
which, by the way, is exactly what everyone expected and what everybody wanted. That's, they, John the Baptist is expecting a political military Messiah. That's why when he's in prison, he's saying, you know, who's going to get this show started? Is it you or we look for someone else? It's what John the Baptist expected and wanted. It's what the disciples expected and wanted. It's what the Jewish people expected and wanted. And it's what the Romans feared. Was that a Jewish political Messiah would rise up and start a revolution. I mean, the Jewish people had been occupied and oppressed by Gentile powers for, six, for 600 years. I mean, think about being an occupied. I mean, their occupiers and overlords switched. They, because empires rise and fall, that's the way it is. But they never had their turn to be an empire. It's like, when's our turn? When do we get to uh, oppress our foes? And so that was, that was the great national longing. And so uh, for 600 years, they're oppressed by, by, by Babylonians and then by Persians and then by Greeks and then by Seleucids. Half of you have never even heard of the Seleucids, but they were oppressing them. And, and now in the current moment of our text by the hated Romans. And so what did they want? Well, they wanted, what they wanted more than anything was a political military messiah to launch the revolution and lead them in their war of independence. They wanted the second coming of Judah Maccabee. Anybody ever heard of Judah Maccabee? If you haven't, don't worry about it. I'll tell you about him. It was during the time, it was after the, after the, uh, Empire of Alexander the Great had broken up and four generals kind of divvied up the world and said, well, you take this and you all take that. And, and Israel was under kind of the Syrian Greek general. It's called the Seleucid Empire. And they were trying to make all the Jews quit being Jews and act like Greeks. And there, there rose up a guy named Matthias was a priest that wouldn't come and he was put to death and in his death he's screaming avenge my blood and his son Judah rose up and launched a revolution against these Greek Seleucids that were oppressing them and it was you know for a time it was somewhat successful and he becomes a national hero by the way Maccabee or Maccabeus means the hammer he was Judah the hammer because he put the hammer down he put the hammer down on Israel's enemies. He put the hammer down on those Greek Seleucids. And that was 200 years before the time of Christ. And so people are saying, man, we, we need that again. Come on, we need, an, we need another hammer. We need another one like Judah Maccabee. We need a, we need a let's, let's do some anachronisms here. We need, we need a William Wallace. We need a George Washington. We need a Che Guevara who, insert your favorite freedom fighter. That's what they're longing for. And Jesus was tempted to give it to them. And he could have done it. He could have become Yahshua the Great. 
History books would tell us about Yahshua the Great. Who in the fourth decade of the first century, except that we wouldn't have called it the first century because we wouldn't have. Why not? Because nothing would have changed. It would have been same old, same old with, you know, insert different names. He could have been Yahshua the Great. Well, if we make him great enough, and I think he could be pretty great, not only overthrew the Romans and drove them out of the Holy Land, out of Israel, out of whatever you want to call it, uh, he could have maybe, you know, well, get, a, get an army. He could march all the way to Rome. Just march right down the Appian Way and grab Tiberius Caesar and throw him off the throne and Yahshua the Great could sit upon the throne in Rome and rule all the nations. That's the temptation. Jesus Christ could become the, the new J.C., the new Julius Caesar. A, Jew, a, a Jewish Julius Caesar. That's, that's the great national dream. That's the great aspiration. But Jesus knew that to follow that course of action, which is so tempting, is to bow down to the devil. And so Jesus says, away with you, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I'm not going to serve you, devil, even in the name of doing good and bringing liberation and all of that. Amen. All right, this is, this is in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Let's go to the end of Matthew's gospel because there's something pertinent there. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Yeah. Jacob said something about, you know, doubt. All right, so you doubt. So what? Just stay with the program. <laughs> Just stick with Jesus. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so as in the third temptation, we're again with Jesus on a mountaintop. Third temptation happens on a mountaintop. This great commission happens on a mountaintop. But even though both are on the mountaintop, everything is different now. There's no more devil, only disciples. And Jesus has won the war. He's won the war by his cross. He's won the war by his cross. Now all authority over the nations... All authority over the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All authority over the nations is given to Jesus by whom? By the Father, not by the devil. This is what the devil does. The devil offers us what God has promised us, but 
the temptation is to do it without God. I don't think you got that. The devil offered Jesus authority over the nations. After his death, burial, and resurrection, what does the Father give him? Authority over the nations. Authority over the nations is what Messiah is to have. But it's not enough just to have the end in mind. The means matter. It had to be the way of the cross, not the way of the sword. This is the, the first temptation, and I don't mean the first wilderness temptation of Jesus. I mean the first temptation. The serpent in the wilderness. Transgress, knowledge, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. That's, that's, that's the allure. The allure is through knowledge to be like God. Well, what does the human tell us? Let us create humankind in our image according to our likeness. Adam and Eve should have said, you stupid snake. God has already promised that we'd be like him. You're trying to get us to be like God without God. Away with you, snake. It is written. Well, it's not written yet, but it will be written. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, the means matter. You can't just say, well, God wants us to be like him, so we'll do it with knowledge apart from God. God wants Messiah to rule the nation, so just, you know, go about it the most quick and efficient way. Raise an army. Overthrow the powers that be. No. Jesus' authority comes through the cross, not through the sword. Let that sink in, my friends. Jesus' authority comes from the cross, not from the sword. Let it sink in. That's why Jesus disarms Peter in Gethsemane and says, no more of this. Why does Jesus arm Peter? So he can disarm him and say, no more of this. That's why at his imperial trial before Pilate, Jesus clarifies to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. Yes, it's for this world. Yes, I'm a king. For this, for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who's of the truth bears witness or listens to me. My kingdom is not from this world, but it's for this world. But it's not from this world. If it were from the way of this world, because the means matter. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. But I have forbidden them to fight. I have not let them fight. They want to fight, but I've said no more of this. Because my kingdom, Pilate, doesn't come the same way that your kingdom through your Caesars has come. The kingdom of Christ does not advance by ballots or bullets, but by baptisms. Oh yeah, there's an alliteration for you. Not by ballots or bullets, but by baptisms. I mean, how did the early church in the first three centuries turn the world upside down? By just telling the good news and making disciples. And that initial, that formal, that final step into discipleship is to be baptized. And by the way, we are baptizing next Sunday. So get signed up. 
and we'll meet up in the baptistry and you will be formally introduced into this kingdom of Jesus followers. A kingdom that advances not by ballots or bullets, but by baptism. All right. We've gone to the end of Matthew. Now let's just go all the way. Let's go to the end of the Bible. Let's go to the book of Revelation. You know it's getting real when we go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All right, the breaking, well, the breaking of the seventh seal unleashes the seven trumpets, and with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the culmination of God's redemptive agenda uh, that only the lamb can implement that only the, the lamb can implement is brought about. I need to explain this. So early in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator beholds the one who sits upon the throne and he holds in his right hand a scroll. We will come to learn that what is written upon the scroll is the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the proclamation of the scroll implements God's redemptive agenda for humanity. The problem is you have to find somebody to, to implement this. Who's worthy? Who, who's worthy to be the king in the kingdom of God? And guess what? They couldn't find anybody worthy. So the redemptive agenda just remains in the hand of the one who sits upon the throne all sealed up. And it means nothing's going to change. What has been is what will be. What is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. And John begins to weep greatly at this prospect. But then one of the elders says, no, 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 stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and he is worthy to break the seals. And John looks and what does he see? Not a lion, a lamb, a little lamb, a slain lamb standing in the center of the throne of God. And the lamb begins to break the seals and the seventh seal, there's seven trumpets. And at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the proclamation is finally made. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. The one at the center of God's throne who is worthy to be the king in the kingdom of God is not a warrior, not a beast, but the lamb. And by, and by the way, because I know, I know some of you are already jumping to Revelation 19 on me. The warrior riding the white horse in Revelation 19 is an ironic warrior. Wearing a robe dipped in his own blood before the battle begins. And he wages war, not with a sword, but with his word. The sword is in his mouth, not in his hand. He wages war. He's an ironic warrior. He's an anti-warrior. He's a warrior, but it's not that kind of warrior. In other words, Jesus will never succumb to the devil's temptation to rule the world as a beast. That's the temptation. That's the third temptation on the mountaintop. Of course, temptations are never made explicit because then they lose their seductive power. But the devil is suggesting to Jesus, Jesus become a beast. 
so that you can do good. Become a beast temporarily. I know, war is messy. You're gonna have to kill some people. Collateral damage will happen, but it's all for a good end. Become a beast so that you can do good in the end. No, away with you, Satan. I'm not gonna worship you. I'm not gonna serve you. I worship my father, I serve my father. Jesus will never succumb to the devil's temptation to rule the world as a beast. Not in Matthew 4 and not in Revelation 19. Ever. Jesus, Jesus does not renounce the Sermon on the Mount to become a cosmic Genghis Khan. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's your tweet right there. Jesus does not, well, you know, I preached the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not renounce his Sermon on the Mount to become a cosmic Genghis Khan. Which brings us back to the third temptation. At the beginning of my sermon, I said this. The third temptation deserves special attention, not only because it was the most sinister, but because it is the temptation that has beguiled and beleaguered the church for 17 centuries. Beginning with Constantine, the church has been tempted to accept an imperial Christianity. That is, a Christianity that accepts the status of the state religion of a worldly empire. Oh, it's a seductive temptation. I'll grant you that. I mean, that, that we might fall for it as entirely understandable. That, you know, the offers will make you the state religion of our worldly empire. I'm sure you could do a lot of good if we gave you that kind of privilege and position. And the church has basically been, where do I sign? How quick can I sign up? But imperial Christianity, or let me say it a little more blunt, state-sponsored Christianity is a compromised Christianity incapable of a prophetic task. I mean, we cannot prophetically call an empire to repent if we're in bed with the empire. Or let me just really say what I came here to say today. Christian nationalism may sound like an expedient way to bring about the discipling of the nations, but it is nothing other than bowing down to the devil. I could have just jumped up here and said that and sat down, because that's what I came to say, but I needed to kind of work up to it. Christian nationalism may sound like a quick, easy, expedient, fast-tracked way to bring about the discipling of nations but it is nothing other than bowing down to the devil. What may start off with great promise, and oh, if, if the devil's great at anything, it's at making great promises. What may start off with great promise ends up with the abhorrent and bloody Christianity of the Crusades or the German Christian movement of the 1930s enabling Nazis, or with the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow, Patriarch Kirill, calling the Russian invasion of Ukraine a holy war. 
We do not need the apparatus of state to further the advance of the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We do not need the apparatus of state to advance the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit for that, the spirit of love, the spirit of advocacy, the spirit of witness. And to trade, and to trade the Holy Spirit for political power, well, that is the essence of a devil's bargain. So when you hear people, and I'm only preaching this, I would like to be done with this, but I, as long as it's an issue, I have to preach. So when you hear people pushing and touting Christian nationalism, just whisper, just within your own heart, I'm not asking you to be confrontational, but in your own heart, just whisper, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then let the angels come and minister to you. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. It was kind of like. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> amen. Come on now, let's confess our Christian faith and then confess our sins and then come to the table where Jesus says, the bread that I give to the world, my, 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 the bread that I give to the world is, is my flesh. And through his flesh and blood communicated through the bread and wine, Jesus gives life to the world and we've come here to partake of that life today, amen. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone we have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves we are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son jesus christ have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name amen and God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. 
You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.